0: We are studying decision-making and uh, we're studying it as squinting into the fog of the future. We're trying to get uh, a sense of how to deal with uncertainty in a wise way and what we're finding out is that making decisions really isn't a matter of having good plans or being rational uh, or having like cost-benefit analyses or pluses and minuses uh, and evaluating the, the courses in your life. It's not really about that. How we make decisions depends entirely on our hearts toward God. If our hearts toward God are filled with the awe, the reverence, the fear, the love that he deserves, then we know something about that fog. We know that he's going to lead us through the fog. We know that he's good for whatever is in that fog. And we know that he'll lead us out the other side and we will be safe, secure, and uh, empowered by the way that he leads us. So we're we're discovering that decision making is really about the work of the gospel in our hearts. And uh, it's about uh, taking responsibility for the decisions that we make and acknowledging the fact that God is at work in our life to remake us, to make us wise decision makers, to make us godly. He is not at work in our life to take our decisions away He is not at work in our lives to convince us that what we really need is just for him to tell us everything that we need to do and then just obey. That is not what we're finding in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is telling us, and I believe what we'll see this morning, the gospel is telling us that God is doing a renovation of our minds and our hearts So that we take decisions on boldly, courageously, and we make those decisions in his wisdom. We take responsibility for them, we own the uncertainty, and as we will see this morning, we also own our errors. Let's talk about after we make decisions and how we think about the the decisions that we've made in the past, how we think about uh, decisions from this past week and from years ago. Uh, How do we deal with uh, the patterns of our lives, decisions that we've already made? I find that uh, many people in our culture are living in a fantasy world, and I'm going to call this fantasy world a world of serial sincerity. This is a, a phrase we started to use about 20 years ago with reference to politicians. Politicians seem sincere at the moment they say what they say. In other words, While they're talking to you, while they're on the screen making the promise, while they're saying the thing about their policies or whatever it may be, they seem to believe what they're saying. They seem to be sincere, and they are equally sincere when they change their minds and when they break their promises and when they change their story about the things that they did. We began to notice that politicians have this way of preying on our trust and confidence in them and they do it by believing what they say at the moment they say it. And so I noticed that phrase coming up about 20 years ago about politicians and what I'm going to do this morning is going to take that phrase serial sincerity and say this, we are now The culture of serial sincerity. There is a hollowness to us. uh, A hollowness that seems to believe what we say at any given moment about our intentions, about our beliefs, about our plans, our desires. We seem to believe it. But at the next moment, when all of that changes, that hollowness inside does not stay faithful to what we said. Instead, we just morph, and we believe the next set of things that we say, the next set of excuses, the next account of our motivations for what we uh, said before, and the plans that we made before. In other words, a lot of our decision-making is infected by this fantasy that, well, I'm a sincere person, I'm a lot like this guy here, I'm just the prince of sincerity here, I'm just, you can believe what I say, you can believe what I tell you, I mean well, everything that I say, I mean from the depths of my heart, even and especially when it changes. And in this fantasy world, it's like nailing jello to the wall to get us to commit to a decision that we've made in the past, or even to commit to the account, the reasons why we made that decision in the past. So, what we're going to confront this morning is the fact that a lot of our problem in decision making is that we refuse to own our errors. We want instead to believe that we're always right, we always have good intentions, we always have good plans, and we don't want to confront the things that are deep down underneath our intentions. We don't want to confront our needs, we don't want to confront our sins, and as a result of that, we make stuff up about the decisions that we make. And so we want to talk about this this morning from the point of view of this text, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 32 and 33. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil... What does it say next? Put your hand on your mouth. And that's what is interesting to me this morning. It doesn't say immediately change course, although you should do that. It doesn't say wise up if you've been foolish, although we should. It doesn't say Repent of evil, although we should, it says, if you've been doing these things, or maybe put it this way, if you've been making these kinds of decisions, put your hand on your mouth, stop making excuses, stop rationalizing, stop saying the things, that will make you seem a better person, a wiser person. Just put your hand on your mouth, that's step one. Why? Verse 33, for pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. We're gonna talk about this this morning. We're gonna look at uh, the reality that is in this proverb. We're going to look at three words that express the reality of the world we're living in. We're going to look at lying to ourselves and excuses that we make for the decisions that we've made in the past when we don't really want to acknowledge why we made those decisions. And I'll take you into a situation that I began talking about uh, from Bridget and Maya's experience Uh, In the past, we'll talk, revisit that. And then we'll look at what the gospel has to say about this. Because the whole point of owning our errors and saying those dread words, I was wrong. The whole point of that is to come to a place of peace with God. And so we're going to call for a decision at the end of this. So let's dive in here. Let's look at reality from the point of view of Proverbs 30 verses 32 and 33. Let me um, sum it up this way. When we say, I messed up, we're usually speaking out of a fantasy world in which sins just kind of happen they they just and most sins in this fantasy world now most sins happen to us somebody else <clears throat> did something and as a result i sinned this is called blame shifting by the way the blame belongs here but we're going to shift it over there it's their fault When we say, I messed up, we're minimizing what we do when we sin. A sin is not messing up. A sin is a decision to say, there's the line that God has drawn. On this side of the line is right and good, and on the other side of the line is wrong and wickedness, and I'm going to cross that line. I'm deciding to do it because I've got a good reason to do it. Well, that's not really messing up, is it? That's a decision. That's not an accident. That's not something that happens to us. That's something that we look at and maybe intuitively, maybe quickly, in a rush, maybe recklessly, but nevertheless, we look at it and we decide, there's the line, I'm crossing it. I know it's there. Don't care. I need to be on the other side of that line. So we're we're gonna confront this phrase, messed up. When we say, I'm only human. Now that's a true statement. We are only human. What do we mean by that? We mean, cut me some slack, will ya? I can't get it right every time, as if when we go through life and take actions that affect the people around us, as if we're always behind the eight ball and we're always just a little confused and just not quite in command of ourselves and in our fumbling, stumbling way we did something that hurt you. That's, that's what, it, what we're saying when we, we say something like, I'm only human. In fact, what God would say in saying, you're only human, is more like this. You're a son of Adam, and your heart is given over to the chaos of sin, and you're making decisions out of that chaos. And so there there are different meanings of these things. The fantasy world that we live in says, I messed up, it happened, oops. Sin is not, oops. In the world of Proverbs, so let me revise that. In the real world, the world that God actually made, sins, trespasses are not accidents, they're decisions. And uh, so what we wanna do here with these verses in the next couple of minutes is move out of the fantasy world of I messed up, oops. And we wanna move into the hard realities of the world of Proverbs to say, I made decisions on purpose For the wrong reasons, and they had results, I was wrong. Completely different world. So let's look at this. Verse 32 says, If you have been foolish. In our fantasy world, the world of serial sincerity, folly is something that happens to you. It's something that is... Kind of unfortunate, but it's usually kind of funny. And we just laugh it off. In the world of Proverbs, folly is not that at all. We've been confronting this over the past years. We've learned this word and the way Proverbs uses it. In the world of Proverbs, foolishness, folly is a scornful rejection of God's wisdom. It's saying, I got this. I already know what is right for me. I don't need you or you or you, God, to tell me. That's what folly is. And so the the way Proverbs 1.7 puts it is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs, folly is, lifts itself up above all knowledge and wisdom and says, I'm so much bigger than this. I'm so much better than this. I so don't need you. So this is where Proverbs is coming from. And in in Proverbs, folly is not... um, it's not an accident, it's not an oops, it's a reality. And in this case, he is saying, if you have been foolish, exalting yourself. If you have been scornful of wisdom and knowledge, and you've been stepping on people to advance yourself, if you have been trampling on the dignity of others in order to raise your own ego, if you have been abusing other people in order to bend them to your will, if you have been exalting yourself, if you've been foolish, then there's something you need to do about that. So the the first thing we need to observe here is that folly is a real thing in Proverbs. It's um, It's not a squishy concept in Proverbs. It's a hard granite wall that we run into. It's as real as gravity. It's as real as calories. You can wish it away, but it's not going to go away. Folly is real. So that's the first word that uh, Solomon uses in this verse. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil. In our fantasy world of how we make decisions, how, how we've made decisions in the past, there is no evil. I always make good decisions. I always have, we'll talk about this in a moment, I always have good intentions. I always want what is right. I always want what's best for you. This is the account that we have of ourselves in our fantasy world. And Solomon comes at us and says, there's this thing called evil. It's a real thing. It's, a, it's not a squishy concept, it's not a concept that just applies to other people. It applies to me. So, go to Proverbs 6, and let's look at a couple of descriptions of evil. Uh, Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. We go back to this little nugget here quite a bit. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven, that are an abomination to him. It doesn't use the word evil here. But it's basically describing evil. God hates these things. These things are an abomination. What what is an abomination? Abomination is is the stench of something rotten that makes you want to hurl. That's an abomination. And so here are the, the six things. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Wickedness, a close synonym to evil. Very parallel concept. It's malicious. It means harm. Feet that make haste to run to evil. There's our word. So when evil's out there, there, there's a certain part of us that runs toward it, hurries up, quickens the pace to meet it. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord like a crop in, in sowing season, they, in, when, when people are planning for the coming year, they go out and they sow discord like a crop. Things that the Lord hates. So if we go back to Proverbs 30 and verse 32, when he says, if you've been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil. If you've been approaching your relationships, your business, your life decisions with these approaches that are haughty, selfish, um, abusive of other people, abusive of the relationships around you, if you've been approaching things in this manner, then the first thing that Solomon is saying to us is, This is real. This is a reality as real as gravity, as real as calories. Evil is a thing, and we participate in it. Now, you say, Pastor, you keep saying that. Why do you keep saying that folly and evil are real? Because, beloved, we don't believe that. We believe it of other people, we just don't believe it about our own decisions. We believe it when somebody hurts us, and we can believe that someone else is foolish, or someone else is to blame, or someone else has done evil, but of ourselves, we stop and say, oh no, 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 I didn't, I didn't mean that, I didn't intend this, I didn't... And the revisions start. And the new stories start about what we actually meant by the decisions we made. And Solomon is bringing us up short and saying, Stop it. If you've been doing this, know that you've been doing something real and engage with that reality. Come out of the fantasy world and engage with the real one. There's one more thing that Solomon is saying is real. Verse 33. Pressing milk produces curds. So, I don't know much about this, but if, if you agitate milk, he's saying it's going to thicken up and it's going to produce curds, right? It's just kind of one-to-one. That's how this works. This is real life. Press milk, produce curds. Pressing the nose produces blood. Anyone want to volunteer for an exhibition of how this works? No, because we know this is true. This is really going to happen. If we actually do that, if we put enough pressure on the nose, it's going to bleed because that's life. That's how this works. One-to-one, cause and effect. And pressing anger produces what? Strife. If you keep pushing, keep needling, keep provoking, or maybe you could put it this way, if you stay in your fantasy world with people around you and they can't get through, they, they somehow they can't break through the barrier, that veil of your dream world, of who you are and why you make the decisions you make, If they can't break through, then if you keep pushing that anger, one-to-one cause and effect, it's going to produce a real thing, strife in your life. And that strife is not going to be their fault. It might be partly their fault. They may have things to own about this in relation to you, but... Strife is real, and the cause and effect of generating strife in your life is a real thing we need to get our hands around, and the only way to do that is to come out of the fantasy world. So much of Proverbs is uh, in this vein of stop dreaming, stop imagining that the world will become what you want it to be. It won't come out of the fantasy world and interact with what's actually going on in your real relationships. So, let me just make this observation. How much of our time and money goes into therapy of any different kind? whether it be psychological therapy, psychiatric therapy, drug therapy, whatever it may be. How much? I don't know, but it's a lot. And the fact is that for the richest nation on earth, we are the most miserable place on earth. I think you can document that. It's in the numbers, it's in the economy, it's in our addictions, and so that leads me to ask this question i realize that everything i've been saying and even the the approach i'm taking here is not just galling maybe irritating it's probably at some level offensive but here's why i'm doing it do you want to be miserable do you want to be well then solomon is saying you've got an opportunity to have wellness. Wellness is coming out of the fantasy world. And this is an invitation say, leave it, just rip that veil and embrace the reality of the world as it is. So having said all of that, let's move on to lying and especially lying to ourselves. Because what's interesting to me about these two verses is that Solomon, as I said earlier, he doesn't say the expected thing. Solomon rarely says the expected thing. He doesn't say, if you've been foolish, wise up. If you've been devising evil, repent and do good, although you should do that. He's saying, there's a step that's prior to any of that before you can actually fix anything about what you're doing, you have to do this. Stop talking. Stop talking about your decisions. Stop talking about who you are and what you want and what you desire and what you really mean and what, how no one understands you and what your parents did to you. Stop. Put your hand on your mouth. That's step one. And that's why, he says, pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, pressing anger produces strife. Excuses take anger and they just agitate it even more. Have you experienced this? You've been on the receiving end of excuses, some customer service situation, and you're just, are you kidding me? Deal with the problem. Stop making excuses. Excuses just just inflate and agitate anger even more. So, step one, Solomon says, if you've been doing these things, and we have, stop making excuses about it. It's only going to make things worse. So, let's think about, what does it look like to make excuses? Let me give you three common ways that we excuse past decisions that we've made and um, basically say we're not as bad as we seem to be. I'm not as foolish as I seem to be. I'm not as unwise. I'm not as sinful. I'm certainly not as evil as I seem to be. And even as I say these things there's part of us that's saying well I'm not I'm not an idiot I'm not a moron that I make these I'm not those things I don't I'm not bad okay well let's think about this let's analyze it the decision that I made was made from good intentions. Have you ever had someone say this to you when it cost you? I meant well. I'm sorry it destroyed your business, or destroyed your house, or destroyed your family, or messed up a whole lot of relationships in your life. But you got to understand, I meant for these other things to happen. Enter serial sincerity. Serial sincerity goes back over what we intended and simply revises the intentions to make them acceptable to the person or to seem more acceptable. Um, You hear this all the time. You hear one rationale for a set of decisions going in and then you hear another rationale going out on the other side of a decision. So in a in a real life situation uh, that I brought up to you last week, Bridget and I many years ago were facing a, a decision of which church to to engage with, and and um, as because we I was looking for a pastoral position, and and I, as I told you last week, there was one near Santa Barbara, and it was in this wonderful community, wonderful people, they all look great, Everything's just, everything is just so clean and nice, and all of this stuff, and, and, and uh, as I said last week, all the signs were pointing to Santa Barbara. Go there, absolutely. Minister there. They need the gospel in Santa Barbara. The other church was in, a, to say, a poorer community is radically understating it. They were not in the same universe at all. Where you've got economic development and wealth going on in one place, you've got wealth fleeing the other place. And hardship, unemployment, difficulty, all these these kinds of things. So, as I said, we're evaluating these two churches from totally different worlds. And emotionally, the signs are saying, go to Santa Barbara. Minister there. But remember, there were a couple of considerations about that. We began to notice that um, everyone, every family we saw, on two incomes which tells you right away in order to sustain the lifestyle that the community had you had to have two incomes because in order to buy the house and the cars and all of the stuff you just have to have that much more money. Now I'm not uh, saying anything against two incomes but we had made a decision. Bridget and I had made a decision that we were going to be a one-income family because of the way we wanted to raise kids. Ministry is difficult enough. Uh, We didn't want um, to try to raise kids on two incomes uh, with, uh, with all of the difficulties that go with that. That was a decision we had made. We had prayed over. We had talked about it a lot. Now, here's what I could have done. I could have said... Oh, the Lord's calling me to Santa Barbara, clearly, obviously. This is the best opportunity. The Lord's opening this door to use that language. And I could look at all of the the lifestyle there, and I could say that um, on the other side of it, I'm sorry, Bridge, I'm sorry you have to go back to work, but... You know, we're committed here. We've, we bought a house here. We took this church thinking the Lord called us here. And I know what we said before, and I didn't intend for this to happen. But clearly, you have to go back to work. You see what happens there? When you look at a situation and you can see what is going to happen, it's not fog at all. You're not squinting into some great mystery here. You're looking at reality, and you're choosing to ignore it. When you do that, and, and you come out the other side and say, well, I never intended for this to happen. If I, I know in my heart, if I had done that, I would have been lying to myself. Straight up. And, additionally, lying to Bridget. I would encourage you to take your intentions off the table in evaluating your past decisions. Um, Not because because I'm arguing here that you are (laughs) evil through and through and you have no good intentions ever, I'm not arguing that, I'm simply saying. Our intentions are very, very mixed and we don't always know our own selves why we pursue the things we pursue. And the thing that scares me about this intent, this good intentions excuse in my own life is that I know enough about the deep intentions, deep down there, to know that I have selfishness in my decisions. So, I have a choice to make. I can either own decisions that I've made that are wrong and say, I was wrong, that was a selfish decision. Or, I can plead my case and say, well, I had good intentions, sorry it affected you, but..." Can you just cut me some slack? You notice, let me just make this one observation before we go on here. We tend to think of the grace of God as squishy as we think folly and evil is. We tend to think that the grace of God is God cutting us some slack because we're only human. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but that is not what is going on with the grace of God. So um, good intentions I'd take them off the table and I'm asking you to do something that I do because at the end of the day it doesn't matter what I intended it matters what I did and it matters that I said this thing that I made this decision and the consequences that came from that, I need to own it, if it was wrong. Second kind of lie that we tell ourselves, ignorance. Boy, I didn't know it cost so much to live in Santa Barbara. (laughs) That was a big surprise to me, that I didn't know that houses cost that much. I didn't know that, it, that rent in a tiny little apartment costs so much. What a shocker. Really? If I'm going to move somewhere, aren't I responsible to know that? We're kind of back to before you build the tower, count the costs so you don't end up with half a tower or you run out of money. Look at the cost in advance. Um... My ignorance is vast, there is so much I don't know, there is so much I don't know about life and people and if you add the future into that, the amount of stuff I don't know just went into, you know, infinite territory. Because everything that's going to happen in the future, even this afternoon, I have no idea. I do not have that knowledge. So, so, the ignorance that I have is something that more and more makes me slower, more cautious to make decisions. If my ignorance f- pushes me to make everything seem so simple, and in, instead of that I'm just gonna push decisions through and I'm just gonna uh, rush people and, and all of these kinds of things to make everything so much more simple for me and my ignorance. If that's what I'm doing, that's, that's not making a decision out of good intentions mixed with ignorance, that's just reckless. And we're gonna talk about recklessness in, in a future study here. But uh, the reason we should get to know our ignorance and the reason I'm trying to get to know my ignorance is because I make better decisions when I know I'm ignorant. It forces me to go learn. Learning is good. Investigation is good. Examination is good. So one of the things that uh, we purposed in our hearts when we were visiting that wonderful church in in Santa Barbara was let's just take a look at the living standard and let's take a look at the number, the salary number that they are telling us and let's see if it adds up. And the answer is no, not even close, ain't gonna happen. You'd have to double it. You'd have to double it and add a third more in order not to be in trouble day one, you arrive in that community. So, ignorance, when, when I find myself saying, oh, I didn't know that, then I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling myself, I just need to own the fact that I didn't do my homework, I made the wrong decision. I'm saying that I should not have been ignorant. Now, if there's lying going on, people covering up things, I mean, that's a different story, but this is about owning my errors, not talking about other people. This is about moving out of my fantasy world in which I am this perfect decision maker who always intends good and dealing with reality. So I'm going to own my errors, and I'm going to leave the errors of other people to them. Last one. Compulsion. Well, I just had to. I just I just couldn't not do it. I couldn't look at Santa Barbara and just walk away. I couldn't do that. I was, I was compelled, and honestly, I think... I think the Lord was leading me. It was the compulsion of the Spirit of God. see what you can do with this? It's, it's so great, uh, the Lord's leading. It serves so many purposes, including our lack of self-control. Compulsion is when someone has a gun to your head and forces you to do something contrary to your will. That's what compulsion is. A lack of self-control is not compulsion. A lack of self-control is a kind of folly And when the Spirit of God takes over our lives and fills us and begins to lead us, the fruit of the Spirit starts to yield love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and on and on, all the way up to this little item that, I don't know, it's there at the the end of that phrase and we all just kind of forget about it. Self-control. Question. What if Jesus died on the cross because I decided that I didn't need to control myself? Let me ask that question again. It's worth pondering. What if Jesus died on the cross because I decided I really didn't need to control myself? I was fine. The reality is that the Holy Spirit of God comes into our hearts to reverse everything of sin and the curse from Genesis chapter 3 and in reversing all of that the finishing touch is self-control and so a lot of times we find ourselves saying well I just I just couldn't help myself and Solomon is just, yeah, really? And, and this is where the scriptures are saying, leave the fantasy world. It's my job to control myself. It really is. And so if I'm not doing my job, whose responsibility is that? Well, well, In our society, it's becoming everybody else's responsibility to control everybody else. We're either going to do that through drugs or we're going to do it through uh, um, uh, arrests, police action, laws, whatever it may be, lawsuits, whatever it may be. But we're we're living in a society where everybody feels compelled to do what they do and self-control is set off to one side. I've been going at this fairly hard. So let's make a final move and bring the gospel into this. Because what we think about the grace of God is that God realizes that I'm only human and the gospel, the grace of God is that he cuts me some slack. He just he lets me off the hook. He moves on so that he doesn't do that kind of mean and nasty thing of getting all wrathful and angry and just and holy about who I am and what I have done. He doesn't do that. He's so much more mature God is. He's so adult. He doesn't get angry at who we are. And and what we have done. So what we've just seen is that Proverbs is saying, when we deceive ourselves about the decisions we've made in the past, we're living in a fantasy world and step one to correct that is to put our hands over our mouths, stop making the excuses, stop lying to ourselves, stop lying to others and simply own the error that we have made and say, I did this, I did it for mixed reasons, but they were the wrong reasons. Ultimately, it was the wrong action, and I'm sorry that I took that action. I'm grieved by the effect that it had on you, and I want to make this right. So we're coming along here now and saying the grace of God is different, maybe, from what we think it is. Here's the grace of God. If we stop lying to ourselves and deny our excuses and rationalizations, if we simply call out our excuses and say, false, inadequate, no excuse, just take those things right off the list. And if we, in doing that, if we say, I was wrong, then what we're doing is we're taking an action that the Bible calls confession. You heard that word? Confession is our agreeing with God, I was wrong. You said I was wrong. And you're right. I was wrong. The gospel begins with confession. You've got to think about that tax collector in the temple, uh, he won't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he says, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm wrong. Or Isaiah in the throne room of God. I'm dead because I am unclean and I live among an unclean people. We're wrong. The gospel starts there. If we want God to cut us slack and take our excuses, then we're not talking about the gospel. We're talking about an idol with Jesus' name on it. It's a false God. So the gospel begins when we put our hands on our mouth and say, done, I'm stopping this, and I'm going to tell the truth about who I am. Second thing about the gospel is the acceptance of now watch this word pardon pardon is not yeah you messed up but it's okay it doesn't really matter we'll we'll laugh it off one day we'll look back on all of this and we'll just have a good chuckle that's not pardon pardon is something else entirely pardon is You were convicted of a crime. And as you stand convicted of that crime, that's something that is objectively true about you. This happened. And you were the originator of this action. Pardon is when the authority comes along and says, I release you from your guilt. And from the punishment of your guilt, go your way, you are free. That's pardon. Beloved, what we have is so much better than move on. It's so much better than, yeah, you messed up, we'll laugh about it one day. It's so much better than you're only human. What we have is full and free Pardon, We are cleared in Jesus Christ at the cost of what? His blood. He died for this. You know what this means? That Proverbs 30, verses 32 and 33, are preaching the gospel to us. Saying, there's a step before you can turn from folly and wickedness. That step is, stop the excuses. Cover your mouth. And instead speak the truth. This is a call to confession. And it's a call simply to say to the Lord, here's what I've done. I am sorry. I was wrong. And I know, I believe, I am confident that Jesus paid the price for my wrongs. And that way I can have Peace with you. This is the gospel of the scriptures. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, there are so many things in our decision making that need to change, but ultimately when we come down to the final analysis, what needs to change is our own sense of who you are and the reality of the world you have made. And so we call upon your name together And we are making confession as your people that we have been wrong. We've been wrong in different ways, to different degrees. We're responsible for different things. And you know all of that. People have done wrong to us, and you know that too. But we are saying right now that we know how we have been wrong. And so we lift that wrong up to you. We ask for your pardon. We pray because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we want to confess our sin. And so as we say all of this to you, We pray for your grace and your mercy and your power. We pray it especially for those here this morning who may be saying this to you for the very first time. We ask you to do a mighty thing in our hearts that we would be the people who have integrity based on your truth, your purchase price for us out of sin, and your goodness to us. And so we ask you to help us do this in your name and for your sake, amen. Um, if uh, We're gonna take some time with questions here. If you have a question, you can uh, text it to me. If you need to slip out, uh, this is a good time to do that. We'll just take a couple of minutes on this. Thank you. Um, okay. Uh, an observation from somebody, we are also the most medicated country on earth, yet we're still the most miserable. True story. Um, this, is, um, this is telling us something about what we're relying on um, for our uh, solutions to problems. Pills can't solve the things, uh, all of these things. Um, here's another question. Uh, Paul says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. How is he not making excuses based on ignorance? I'm assuming he is not doing this wrongly. What he's saying there is, I took the Old Testament and completely twisted it around so that I didn't even know what God was saying anymore. And so he's taking responsibility there um, for his understanding of who God is and what God does. He's not saying, well, God let, let me off the hook because uh, I didn't know it. Um, you can find him saying in other places uh, like Romans 1, we knew, we, we know the law, we know what the law says. The law holds us accountable in this case. Uh, He is saying uh, that um, uh, the Lord recognized his ignorance and amended it. So um, it may sound like the kind of excuse we're talking about, but it's a very different thing. Isn't saying I'm only human as a Christian the same as denying Christ? Let me think about that. um in this sense i wouldn't say it's denying christ that's probably too strong but um i think we need to stop saying it because what we really need to say is we know what is in us from adam we know what's in us from the sin nature we're not ignorant about that or we shouldn't be and so um, that's what we are. Saying I'm only human basically says that Jesus had to die for a series of unintended mistakes. And that's not why Jesus died. So these, I, I wouldn't say using that phrase is denying Christ, probably too strong, but uh, I, I do think we need to stop saying it. Um, and this verse... Uh, that uh, was in my mind, actually, as I was preaching here the last few minutes. John uh, 1, I think 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now that is a strong statement that John makes there. Um, we like the verse that says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But we forget that next idea. If we say we have not sinned, we're making him a liar. Um, And we don't have the right to do that. So um, it's worth revisiting that verse. So if I study the word of God for years, acquire godly wisdom, Um, apply the principles um, as well as running things by godly friends and getting godly advice, shouldn't this lead to not even needing to ask God in prayer for leading or uh, in right decision-making? In other words, if I'm just totally rational about this and I'm a disciplined person, why pray? Um, Because you're not, I mean, it's all very well to say, if I make the decision right, and if I'm disciplined and self-controlled, and if I ask all the right questions, well, okay, yeah, if. If you're omniscient, then yes, you don't need to ask God. But the fact is, that's a lot of ifs. And I would be, uh, I would be afraid to say that I had done all of those things because I don't think that would be true. Uh, so, uh, the the role of prayer in decision making is really uh, about our ignorance, and an acknowledgement that we may not know how ignorant we are, but God does, and that's why we need to pray. That's why we need His leading.